people are beginning to be aware that there is a, a renewal, a renaissance, a flourishing of lots of things happening at the local level that deserve more attention at a time of national level paralysis. So I think people are recognizing that what they've seen in their own communities is happening other places too. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. I'm Krista Crum, Analyst Relations Lead at Esri, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard author and journalist James Fallows talk about the civic and economic reinvention he and his wife Deborah observed while crisscrossing the U.S. in their single-engine prop plane visiting small cities. James and Deborah documented their interaction with resilient communities in their national bestseller, Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America. Hear Esri CMO, Mariana Cantor, learn about what they gleaned from business leaders, students, educators, and others during their travels. Good morning, Jim and Deb, and thank you so much for being here with us today. It's our pleasure thank to talk you, with Mariana. you. Thank you, Mariana. Thanks. For the last five years, you've been traveling across America in a single-engine prop plane, visiting dozens of towns and interviewing hundreds of people, including civic leaders, business leaders, city workers, educators, and the list goes on and on. You write, and I quote, We began this project with one purpose in mind, to take a fresh look at the country, its disappointments, and its possibilities. And you go on, we ended up wondering about questions and trends that were different from what we'd expected and with a story to tell that we could barely have imagined when we started out. What did you expect when you embarked on this adventure? I think our main goal was simply to find out what was happening out there, what, what it was like. You know, we've worked as journalists for a long time and the satisfaction and challenge of journalism reporting is simply to go and see and learn what you didn't know until you showed up. So we thought if we applied that process to the interior of America at a time when the economic uh, recovery was still just beginning, when we were hearing these very contradictory reports of what was good and what was bad in places away from the coast of America, we just wanted to know whether there was a there there and what the there would be like. And there's one other thing about the project that may sound like it's nothing, but I think was a really important difference and an increasing one between what we are trying to do and the way we're used to hearing smaller cities covered in the national media, which is that 95% of the time when you have a place like Sioux Falls, South Dakota, or Duluth, Minnesota, or Greenville, South Carolina in the national news, it's either on the one hand because of something that's happened there, you know, a shooting, a flood, some other thing which makes uh, episodic quick news, or because people are doing a political report and they go to this town and say, how do you feel about Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? And the, th that is so widespread that we take it for granted as the only way you would cover many of these cities, but we never ask people those things. And we thought over time that if you ask them these immediate national politics questions, you flatten everything down to two dimensions. You know, they're either on one side or the other, and everything that's interesting about the place falls by the wayside. So we're trying to look for the interesting stuff and not the flat, which side are you on in national politics uh, divide. 
In the book, you observe that the economic framework of society shifts approximately every decade, which can cause economic downturn and disenfranchise some parts of the population. You even compare our time to the Gilded Age of the 19th century. Uh, would you talk more about that? From my studies of both American history and economic history generally, it seems to me that the the one main plot line of modern economic life is its constant change and that it was less than 150 years ago that most Americans worked as farmers and you've had just generation after generation of people leaving the farm for the mills and leaving the little mills for the offices and leaving offices in one part of the country for a different part of the country and booms and busts in natural resources industry, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the concentration of change we've had in the last 10 or 15 years is at least superficially similar to what happened between, say, the 1880s and 1910 or 1915, where you had sudden rises of new industries and new fortunes and sudden displacement of people by technological uh, obsolescence and sudden arrivals of new people from around the world and real uh, disappointment in national level politics and all sorts of other things that were happening in that era. So both as a guide to these sorts of things have happened before, I, I draw that comparison, but also as a promising possibility that the original Gilded Age was followed by this very productive progressive era of people innovating in all sorts of ways, in schools, in the environment, in women's rights, in minority rights, in all sorts of ways. So I'm trying to encourage the idea that another era of reinvention and renewal may be underway. So speaking of positive renewal, how are you seeing communities respond? What are some common coping mechanisms and what are some differences that you're that you've observed to start with the the commonalities as we've gone from town to town place to place all of which are very different from each other you've got small agricultural towns in California tiny towns in the desert in Arizona bigger cities like Columbus Ohio that have all kinds of both commercial industry and a giant university. The commonality in that seems to be that from place to place, people have a very distinct sense of where they are, of the place where they live, of the assets of their town that they have to work with, of the problems that they have to address. And that sense of place is much more manageable and something that you can kind of focus on and wrangle when the world that you're operating in is is just smaller. So there's actually a movement around this which we didn't discover until we'd we'd been, you know, seeing these one by one ourselves. Placemaking, where towns will do what they think they need to do based on their assets and their whether it's human capital or geography or industry or a river. That's kind of the biggest common thing, I think. And the differences then are how you apply that. In a lot of places, it might be about schools where education is more demanding so that that the energy goes there. Or other places, it might be about um, a thriving or attempt to make thriving a startup culture. Or it might be around just the nature of the place. Is this about agriculture? Is this about being on the water? And, and there are a couple of other trends that are accelerating this. We, we hadn't anticipated there are six or eight cities in the United States where real estate is just so expensive that it destroys your life. 
you know, in San Francisco and in Seattle and in New York and a few other places. And as that's become more of a factor, young people are saying, I can have a different and better life balance in a place as big as Columbus, Ohio, a place as technically advanced as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or in Duluth, or in Fresno, or all these places where real estate is so much less expensive that uh, you can just have a, a different life balance. Uh, Deb, you were saying that the problems may differ, but the approach to solving them is similar in terms of being very cognizant of the place that you're in. That is one aspect. And another one that is common that we found in a lot of places is the idea of collaboration being so important. I think that's one of the most frequently used words that we heard all across the country, even in as I wrote at one point, in Columbus, Ohio, there's so much collaboration going on in public-private partnerships with the education, with the town development, that they just stopped saying collaborate and they shortened the word to collab. And it's <laughs> a perfectly good word to use now. Well, again, back to Columbus, you've got a lot of young businesses trying to start. And Everybody knows about food trucks, but there are really a lot of food trucks that are in Columbus, Ohio. And I was talking to this one young woman who was Korean by heritage, and she had a food truck that won a lot of awards. But she said it was made possible to her by the, quote, small business concierge that the, that the government of the city of Columbus had set up to help people like her at the very early stages of starting a business to, to guide them along. Taking these steps is so helpful for young people with ideas or creativity, but not necessarily the know-how that the town in various different ways would step in to help out. What do you think is the fundamental characteristic of human nature that accounts for this locally focused dynamic that essentially discounts the national scene in a day-to-day it's been more than a century since Walter Lippmann wrote his book, Public Opinion, which essentially said a basic tension in modern society is, is between things you experience directly and those you're seeing in some mediated form, you know, in pictures and images being provided some, from someplace else. And something has happened in the past generation or so, I think, to make those the image version of the outside world much more frightening, much more depressing, much darker than it actually is. And so people think the world they're not experiencing is worse than the one they're actually in, and this sort of makes them more fearful of, of national involvement. Just to give, make this concrete, in the 1970s, crime in big American cities was a really big problem in New York and elsewhere. Since the 1970s, the level of crime has gone down and down and down, and fear of crime has gone up and up and up. So this gap between the reality and the sort of perceived image, that's a genuine challenge for national governance. I don't know what it is in human nature, but it's sort of the, the set of cards that have been dealt to us right now. I'll go back to the point you made, Jim, about you seeing reverse migration in the sense from coastal cities, large cities, to smaller communities. and the desire to make these communities walkable and livable and healthy and so on. Are our current social systems just too big? It's hard to be accountable to and connected to vast numbers of people when they live, when we're all Americans with a, a capital A. But when you're from Fresno or for when you 
make smaller your neighborhood in New York City to think it's Chelsea or the radius of how far you can walk to, to get your clothes cleaned or buy your coffee. And seeing those faces, this, it, it's the same kind of impulse, I think, of wanting to just connect in a at a very human, personal level, a level where you feel like you can have some kind of impact or some kind of agency or some kind of effect. Um, who knows what the number is? We heard from towns of 1,400 to 25,000 to 150,000. My town is the perfect size because there's a lot going on here, but it's small enough that I can have an impact on it and I can do something and see the results. I want to shift gears a little and ask you about your perspective on some of the country's better known challenges, such as the opioid crisis, health care. Were there important issues that didn't make it to the national scene? On the one hand, issues everybody is aware of on the national scene, like opioids and like um, the legacy of centuries of slavery and race tensions and other and police uh, treatment of minorities and things which, which are well-known national problems. Of course, we saw their local manifestations and ways in which people were trying to, to cope. What was surprising was, number one, a couple of things that you don't hear in national news but are real problems. For example, inequality in broadband connection. Yeah. You know, people who live in New York and San Francisco assume everybody has high-speed internet 24-7 wherever they go. In about two-thirds of the country, it's really hard to get internet connection and very fast. And I think they're less aware in a lot of the national media and big cities of a lot of local-level innovations and successes. For example, all sorts of high school programs, what they call career technical education and community colleges, that are training people for a lot of advanced uh, technology jobs in welding and wind turbine repair and robotics repair and all these things which are are opening up. On the healthcare front, you saw lots of local coping with trying to cope with healthcare issues. Where do the resources come from to correct some of these access to care, access to services issues? These are, are the kinds of questions which historically have had finally to be addressed at the national level. For example, you know, there was something called the Rural Electrification Administration, the REA, which was part of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal that transformed the world of the South by bringing electricity, which sounds almost incredible now that that would be something that had, had to be done, but it was during you know, less than 100 years ago. And I think that some of these locational inequality issues in, in broadband access, in healthcare access, historically we've required national standards, national investment to make this happen. So I think there will come a time when there's a national emphasis on, on these things again. Can businesses do something with a better awareness of where the equity of their services are and so on? For example, if um, analytical maps showed them, here's places where you're not aware of it, but people have, you know, whether these healthcare access questions or broadband access or water or food deserts or whatever else, this is something where some of them, they may be easier to solve than we think if the patterns became more evident. I want to ask something a little bit more fun. In the book, you mark the upsurge of craft breweries in many of these cities that you visited. Um, do you feel that the presence of breweries and distilleries indicates something positive about the community? You know, it sounds like a joke that craft breweries are important, but actually 
they do have an economic and cultural uh, value. Now, economically, they employ hundreds of thousands of people across the country. They've been a, a significant driver of, of local growth, you know, several times more, for example, than than, than mining. You know, more people work in craft brewing than, than, than in mining. There, there's one other interesting thing we've seen about the local brew pubs, how they're broadening their mission in a sense. It's, it's more than being just about beer now. Uh, of course, it's about food too, but they're becoming more kind of civic places. In Duluth, Minnesota, we went back to the Bent Paddle Brewery that we first visited, I don't know, three years ago or four years ago. We went back a couple weeks ago wondering how they were doing. And not only had they moved to a much bigger space, but they had in, in their public space, they had um, a whole kids section so people could come with their families and you know the kids were playing with Legos and all these things and, and getting food. And they had dedicated an entire back room of their brewery location to be a, a civic social room. And on the day they, that we were there, they were having an evening meeting of a local writer's club who came together regularly at the Brook Pub to, like you'd think of a, how a library operates. It's kind of the library social functions also moving now to the Brew Pubs. In several parts of the book, you outline public-private partnerships and their ability to attract new business, rebuild towns, uh, educate students, and so on. Did you gain a new appreciation for the alignment between local government and business? I certainly did. I think in my years of covering national politics in D.C., I'd grown very cynical and jaded about any phrase like public-private partnership. But now, having seen dozens of these specific illustrations, I, I'm, I'm, I've shifted the view that, if, that most things that are worth doing and that are complicated to do involve a combination of sort of the steering efforts or standard setting of governmental authorities, local or national, and all the creativity and resources and efficiency of, of businesses and, and the profit motivation. And we have a million illustrations. I'll give just one or two that come immediately to mind in the so-called Golden Triangle of Mississippi in, in the eastern side of the state, Columbus, West Point, and Starkville, a historically you know underdeveloped part of the state. The state government um, offered some incentives, also working with the national government, to private corporations to come in there with a guarantee that the jobs they created in a new steel factory would pay on average a very, very high wage of like $70,000 a year for the average wage in an area where the average household income was like 25000 or 28000 So just transforming the area, but it was the state government having some incentives private businesses making the investments, and then local both um, high schools and community colleges working very actively to train people who are out of the workforce for these specific jobs. And it couldn't have happened without all of them working together, but with them together, it made a difference. I was going to pivot this a little bit to talk about public-public partnerships. Mm. In a lot of these towns where there are strong public institutions, but they are shortchanged in the kind of resources that they have. They're finding ways to work with each other to be bigger in each of their missions. For example, Winters, California, it's a tiny town, maybe 10, 12,000 people. Um, the public school has a small library and a small budget that is restricted in the number of hours that 
their librarians can spend there. They have a, a new library in town that's right next door to the high school, but they're constrained in their budget of how many hours they can be open. So they decided that the librarians from the school would open the public library an hour or two early in the morning when the kids came to school so they could go over and use the resources in the public library and then the, the school librarians would go back to the school. You learned a lot about industries, both new ones like renewable energy, commercial, space aviation, and old ones, ports and newspapers. What lessons or learnings about industry really stand out for you? Two things that, that I hadn't appreciated five years ago that, that are, are I now believe in more is, one, the value of actually created um, incubators and startup spaces and workshops and maker areas which can attract some concentrations of talent. I'm thinking now of a place we saw in Louisville, uh, Kentucky, which was spun off from General Electric's uh, appliances division and has become a real breeding ground in a good way for people who have a manufacturing background but are trying to apply that to new areas, whether it's space technology or drones or precision agriculture or whatever. So so I, I believe more in having some kind of structural support. It matters that you keep equipping young people for new possibilities and mature people who are you know are pushed aside to take the best advantage they can. And I now think that community colleges are really the place where that happens. Of course, our research universities are fundamental to long-term development, but community colleges and, and career technical programs in high schools are the, are the connecting rod where you can allow the, the inevitable progress towards new industries to continue while reducing and even minimizing the human cost of that and, and increasing the human value of having people feel this can be for them rather than against them. And having more people who are like the wind turbine repairmen we saw in Kansas who had wind turbines in their wheat fields and less like the sort of displaced coal mining families in Appalachia who felt like they had no future because you know this job had been going down for a century. I want to acknowledge that your books quickly made it to the New York Times uh, bestseller list. In closing, why do you think the book has resonated? I think there may be a fortunate coincidence of timing here. Number one, people in general don't want to be downcast. They they want to be able to, to think there are brighter possibilities. But I think there is an actual moment in this country's history, this country, the United States, and to to a degree, a lot of other countries too, where people are beginning to be aware that there is a a renewal, a renaissance, a flourishing of lots of things happening at the local level that deserve more attention at a time of national level paralysis, regardless of your political orientation. So I think people are recognizing that what they've seen in their own communities is happening other places too. That was fascinating as always. Thank you both very much for being here. Mariana, thank Thanks, you so Mariana. much for giving us this chance. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to James and Deborah Fallows for sharing their firsthand experience of American communities transforming themselves during an era of economic and technological change. To learn more, download our free ebooks, Making Sense of Digital Transformation at esri.com forward slash where, Putting AI and Location Intelligence to Work at esri.com forward slash AI, and Making the Most of the Internet of Things at esri.com forward slash IoT.